The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, with my co-host today, Michelle Eugenti-Rita. Hello, Michelle. Hello. We are so fortunate today to have with us Elliot Abrams. He is a man who's been responsible for a lot of the peace and prosperity in our world for the past several decades, couple decades. He served as Deputy Assistant to President and National Deputy National Security Advisor to the administration of George W. Bush where he supervised U.S. policy in the Middle East for the White House and a special representative for Iran and Venezuela in the administration of Donald Trump. He is also a senior fellow for the Middle Eastern Studies for the Council of Foreign Relations. Mr. Abrams, thank you for joining us today. Sure. Very glad to do it. All right, so let's talk about Iran. Iran sees some tanker, sees a tanker last week. They seem to be causing chaos all the time, um, sort of unabated. Tell us what our listeners, what we need to know about Iran and what do we need to do? Well, the first thing is just what you said, that is, they're causing chaos. They're causing chaos in the whole region. They're basically an enemy to everybody there. Uh, Yemen, Iraq, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan. I mean, they're supporting terrorist groups all over the Middle East. And they're targeting Americans. And they've been targeting Americans since 1979, since the revolution there. And they've been killing Americans for decades. And frankly, we're letting them get away with it. Uh, They've been killing Americans. We're not killing Iranians. You know, we just sort of issue strong protests when these things happen. And the lesson that teaches them is, okay, we can get away with it. Um, So at this point... Uh, they're really a dangerous country for all of our friends in the region. And, you know, the, they continue to use the same two slogans, death to America, death to Israel, that they've been using since 1979. So what do we do about it? Well, one thing we shouldn't do, maybe we should start with this, we should not get back into the nuclear deal that President Obama negotiated. It was a bad deal the day he did it. And it's a worse deal now, uh, because there were a lot of provisions of it that were going to disappear over time. And they're disappearing, because the years have gone by. That was a 2015 deal, and it's slowly disappearing. Another thing, here's the thing we should do. If you look at the amount of oil they were exporting, mostly to China, during the Trump years, it was much, much less than they're exporting now. Again, they're getting away with it. Uh, In the Trump administration, we made it clear to everybody involved in oil, that is, you know, the ship owners, the ship captains, the crews, the insurers, you name it, we're going to go after you. They obviously don't believe that anymore, and the amount of oil that's going from Iran to China is way up, and the amount of money they get is way up. They're practically broke at the end of the Trump administration. And they've got tens of billions of dollars now. So we need to, those sanctions are all in the books. We need to 
enforce them if we, we're going to have any impact. We don't seem to enforce anything. Um, domestically, gun laws don't seem to get enforced. Every time you hear about a mass shooting, there's some gun law they you know, they broke previously, and it's not enforced. We just had on before you, Andrew Hale, or after, he discussed the $850 billion in debt China has the United States that they're defaulting on. We're not holding them accountable. Why, why don't we hold these folks to accountable to laws that are in the books? Well, I agree with you. Uh, and I think uh, in the case of Iran, you know, we can do it. We showed that we can do it. By the time Trump left office, their whole national reserves that they could access were down to $4 billion. You know, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of individuals in this country now who have got more money than that. But they're building it up again because we're not enforcing it. Why don't we do it? I think this administration, Biden administration, came with, came, you know, these are all Obama people, and they came in with the idea that Iran deal called the JCPOA in 2015 it was great. It was perfect. It was wonderful. We just have to restore it. And so, you know, they don't want to make trouble. They don't want to make the Iranians angry by enforcing the sanctions that are on the books, partly because they think, well, we're, you know, we're going to get back in this deal and the sanctions will go away. So why bother enforcing them? Well, we're two and a half years into the Biden administration. There is no, thank God, there is no deal with Iran. We should be enforcing those sanctions. Um, if you were to sit down, and let's say you're in, say you're in Iowa and you're sitting down in New Hampshire, you're running for president, you're sitting in living rooms of people. The question that would seem to me they would be asked is, why is Iran so hell bent on causing so much chaos and mm-hmm. continually attacking Americans? I mean, what, what? I mean, it's been four decades. I mean, what yep. is the motivation to continue to do this instead of saying? Let's just be normal. Let our people have a decent life. We'll have our rules. But, you know, we don't need to be causing chaos all the time. They're, they're the ultimate disruptors of the Middle East. They are. They are. Well, you know, it's, a very, it's actually a very good question. I think the answer is, first of all, it's not a democracy. You know, it's, it's a theocracy. It's ruled by the Ayatollahs. So no one cares what Iranians think. You know, they're not voting for these policies. They didn't vote for this government. So we can't blame the Iranian people. We've got to blame the Ayatollahs who run the country. And, you know, it's completely ideological for them. First of all, you know, they're Shiites, and they believe that uh, the fact that most of the Arab countries and most of the Muslim countries around the world are, are Sunnis is, is evil. Uh, and, and they want more power for their brand of Islam. The other thing is, they want to be the most powerful country in the Middle East. They are the most powerful country in the Gulf. Mm. They have a much uh, larger, more capable military than, than the other countries. So what stops them from really dominating the whole region? You made a bold statement. You said Iran is killing Americans and we're letting them get yeah. away with it. Yeah. I mean, that's frightening. Why are we letting them get away with it? What's the political motivation to um, continue to allow Americans... Uh, get slaughtered mm. like we have over the last Boy, it, several it, decades. You know, uh, it, it's amazing. If, uh, <laughs> you just said it. And when you say it, I think most Americans would hear that and say, this can't be right. Right. But it is right. I mean, look, look, at, the Iraq, Iran, uh, look at the Iraq war. I mean, they were feeding all of those terrorists in Iraq. Uh, the Pentagon will tell you that Iran killed something north of 600 Americans 
and wounded and crippled thousands of Americans. But go back further. The Marine barracks in Beirut, um, who did that? Iran and Hezbollah did that. Hundreds of Marines dead. And we never really respond. And we have what's known as escalation dominance. That is, people say, well, you know, if we strike back and then they'll escalate and then we're in real war. No, we're not. Mm-hmm. It's a third-rate power. Mm-hmm. It's a country of 70 million people. They're not insane. They do these things because they think, rightly so far, they can get away with them. And if they didn't think that, they'd stop. And by the way, you know, they kill more Americans than they kill Israelis. Now, why is that? Mm-hmm. They attack more Americans. Why? Because they know the Israelis will hit them. Mm-hmm. They know every time they hit, they'll get hit back. And we need to establish the same kind of deterrence with Iran, or this is going to keep on happening. Another example, hostages. We've got hostages in Iran. Now, President Trump got uh, several of them out. This was under Secretary of State Pompeo um, for nothing. That is, we didn't you know, pay a ransom to get them out. We negotiated, we pressured, and got them out. This administration is negotiating, as it should, to get the hostages out, but it looks as if uh, the deal is they're going to be willing to pay something like 7 or $10 billion. Mm-hmm. So the Iranians learn from that, well, this is a good business, right? You take American hostages, you make a lot of money. Um, we're, we're letting them get away with it. And I think every president says, well, not right now. You know, I don't want to take this on right now, or it's going to get too complicated. But this has been going on since 1979. They sound like coyotes at the border here. Well, they're, you know, look, uh, they're not crazy. They look at this the way any criminal gang would look at it. What can I get away with? What's too dangerous for me? Mm-hmm. What's the likely punishment? How likely is it that I get caught and punished? And they make their calculation. And unfortunately, we've taught the lesson over the years. They're, you know, you're probably going to get away with it. Every teenager has weighed that decision with their parents on something, right? <laughs> right. We all have exactly kids here right. where they've all weighed My that kids decision. Do it all the time. I think a perfect example of this is when Trump ordered the assassination of, I think it was General Soleimani back exactly. three years ago. I, yep. you know. New York Times, oh my gosh, World War III has started. Yep. You know, and they, they toss some missiles at some of our bases, but you haven't heard anything since. And, no. you know, look, you just sometimes got to, you know, I, I remember years ago, um, Lee Atwater told me the way you handle bullies, you punch the bully. If you don't, they'll keep doing it. You have right? to stick that, up to them. That is, you know, it, it's right. I remember uh, under, under Jimmy Carter, uh, Secretary of State Vance resigned in protest after he tried to free the hostages in Desert One. And somebody made the comment that Vance was a guy who obviously had never been in a schoolyard and didn't know how you behave with bullies. And I I think, I really do think that's exactly right, that they respect power. Mm -hmm. What was their real response to our assassination of Soleimani? Nothing. Exactly. Nothing Nothing at all. Mm -hmm. Nothing at all. It's just, it's crazy that we're still talking about Iran since 1979. And hostages. Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. absolutely boggles the mind that we're still at that point. Um, 
We have um, less um, less than a minute here for this segment here. Um, when we come back, I definitely want to talk about the Cuban spy base they're putting down there, China. Um, yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the Monroe Doctrine. Do we need to really re-up that in our hemisphere now? I feel like that's something we need to do. We've neglected it quite a bit. Um, just briefly in 30 seconds, what are two or three things you would do if you had control of U.S. policy towards Iran? First of all, I'd tell them that Obama's nuclear deal is dead and we're not going back to it. Secondly, I tell them that every time, every time they try to kill an American, whether they succeed or not, oh, sometimes they miss, only wound someone, they're going to get hit. Mm-hmm. Not their proxies in Syria or Iraq, they are going to get hit. They'd stop very fast. We're with Elliot Abrams. He is the Senior Fellow of Middle Eastern Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations. He also served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor to the administration of President George W. Bush, and also served as Special Envoy to Iran and Venezuela for Donald Trump. Uh, Mr. Abrams, where can people find you on your writings? Uh, the uh, Council of Foreign Relations website, cfr.org. Uh, just, you know, in the search, search for my name. And uh, there's a list there of everything I've, I've done recently. Fantastic. With Elliot Abrams, we'll be right back. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, and my co-host today is Michelle Ugenti Rita. Thank Happy you, Michelle. Yes, so glad you're fun. here. We are so lucky to have with us today Elliot Abrams. He is a man who has been involved in international politics for three decades plus. Uh, Mr. Abrams, thanks again for joining the show. Glad to do it. All right, so you recently wrote a piece on the Chinese spy base in Cuba. I mean... Boy, history seems to repeat itself a lot. It wasn't China, it was Russia, but it just seems to have gone over and over and over. What do we need to do, and why should the United States, which Michelle and I both believe in this policy, we need to start focusing more on our hemisphere. Right. South and Central America, I mean, everybody talks about a border crisis. Well, you can lessen the border crisis if you have thriving economies in Central and South America. I mean, there's lots of ways to this. But talk about how dangerous this is, what should the United States do? Well, first, uh, it is dangerous, and we faced something a little bit like this under President Reagan, and I I served in the Reagan administration. Um, We had some of this in Central America. We had, for example, uh, the uh, communist guerrillas take over in Nicaragua, and they were on the verge of taking over in El Salvador, and then there was Grenada, remember that? And and Reagan invaded. Um, What he did was... He said, look, we've got to do something about these economies. We had a thing called the Caribbean Basin Initiative to help improve their economies, try to get more factories open there, give them some access to the U.S. Uh, for things like garments. Um, much better to have them made there than in China or mm-hmm. you know, Vietnam or someplace. Um, and it worked. And I do think that the, 
we need something like that. And the Biden administration does not, it seems to me, have, really have a policy. And so everybody comes up to the border, and the border has for many, many years been essentially open. I mean, not formally, but, you know, realistically, you, you go on a cross. Now, the Chinese are making inroads all over Latin America, uh, spending a lot of money, um, and getting people in debt, which is their specialty. Yeah. You know, we'll build that bridge. We'll build that road. We'll build that airport. And then you're in debt to them, and many of these countries can't pay. So then the, the Chinese have real leverage over them. That's happening all over, particularly South America. Now, in Cuba, uh, you know, the Russians really don't have the money they had once upon a time. So the Chinese are offering them money, and in exchange, they want the kind of spy base the Russians had. It's at a place called Lourdes, um, the Soviets had. And, of course, you know, 90 miles from Florida. What's in Florida? CENTCOM headquarters in Florida, SOUTHCOM headquarters in Florida. You know, one could go on. Air, Air Force bases in Florida. Um, so it's, it's very useful to them. But one thing I think we've got to do, uh, you mentioned the Monroe Doctrine, is to make it clear that uh, people are not going to be able to get weaponry that can reach the United States. We actually had this happen in the Trump administration. We had some intelligence that Iran was going to send missiles to Venezuela that could reach the United States. And we uh, made it clear to them, we sent messages through all the right channels, including military intel, uh, no, that's not acceptable. We will interdict those ships. And if we can't interdict them for some reason, or you fly the stuff in, we'll take them out in Venezuela. That's not going to be permitted. And they stopped. They never did it. Again, a real, you know, a real assertion of American willingness, and nobody will take us on because we're stronger. Uh, I think we've got to keep that clear for Cuba, for Venezuela, uh, for all of Latin America, that we are not going to permit it to be a base for uh, attacks on the United States or for threats against the United States. Well, I'm going to take a little different a question here than what we've been talking about. You have worked for Reagan, the Bushes, and Trump. Tell us something that people don't know about each president you worked for that the press would never cover, but something that you found that was a certain quality about their leadership that our audience would like to understand. Uh, oh, boy. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'll say one thing about Ronald Reagan. I think people know it, but um, – in private, he was about the most charming man on the mm -hmm. face of the earth. And he had a million stories, many of them from his days in Hollywood. But he was just, um, you know, indomitable, I guess is, is the wow. word I'd use. Um, you know, people would line up to try to get to spend a minute with him. There are some bosses, you know, who people said, oh, you go in there. No, you go yeah. in there. <laughs> Not with Ronald Reagan. People were... Just, you know, when you had a minute with him, it was delightful. I would say something about George W. Bush that I think people don't remember. Think about 9-11. Mm -hmm. It happened, and he thought, most Americans thought, our intelligence community thought, maybe this is only the start. Maybe there's more coming. And the whole country turned to the president yeah. for leadership. And you may remember his speech at the National Cathedral, um, 
to be working for him in those days was to realize this is a man who's carrying the country on his shoulders. Not only carrying just us in the staff, big deal about that, but the whole government and carrying the country. Of course, he couldn't have done it without his very deep religious faith, which he had and has. But I remember those days thinking, what is the strength of this man? Mm. He knows if he flinches, if he wobbles, if he shows that he's uncertain, he's depressed. The, the whole country's going to feel that way in a day or two. And he never did. He never flinched. Uh, I, I think those were, in a, in a way, his, his, most, his greatest days, because he carried all of us in that, in that terrible period in the fall of 2001. And Trump? I didn't get to spend as much time with Trump. For, for George W. Bush, and I worked in the White House, uh, uh, you know, he was right there. For State, um, if, sorry, for Trump, I was at the State Department and handling Venezuela and Iran and didn't get to, um, to spend as much time. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you this question about Trump, uh, which I think yep. we have this we have this segment of the Republican Party. I am not one. We have two minutes left here, by the way, on this segment. Okay. Um, he's not as isolationist as some of his ardent supporters are. I mean, you know, you give me an example of Iran. An isolationist is not going to go knock out an Iranian general. What do people misunderstand about his foreign policy? Well, I think you've said it. I'll give you another example of Venezuela. I mean, okay, so they have a dictator and uh, it's a horrible, horrible situation. And people are fighting back democratically. Um, who cares, Right. What's our business? That was not the Trump view. We actually spent an enormous amount of time and diplomatic effort supporting the opposition in Venezuela. He was not at all an isolationist. He, you might call him a, a, a sort of real politique guy. That is, he wanted to weigh costs and benefits very, very carefully. He didn't want to throw good money after bad. He didn't want to invest in a losing situation. That's very different from saying, I don't care. And I'm not interested. Uh, that was not the Trump administration view. And you remember, what, what did he say about NATO? He didn't say, I'm leaving NATO. He said, pay up. Right. He said, let's make this work. Uh, so I think, I think the isolationist idea is that's not a description of Donald Trump. Yeah, he definitely wanted them to pay their 2%. Yeah. And um, yep. I'm telling and, you right now. And he made a lot of progress, by the way. Absolutely. More they, progress than any president had made before. And he would definitely and he would definitely demand that they put their fair share into Ukraine now, which they're not doing. They, mm -hmm. They're all lip service right now. Let's use Canada as an example. With Michelle and I with Elliot Abrams, this is BreakingBattlegrounds.vote. We're going to come back with Elliot for one more segment, and we're going to talk about something interesting, why the U.S. should promote democracy and human rights. For the United States, Michelle will take the lead on that with our guests, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm Chuck Warren. My co-host today, Michelle Eugenti-Rita. We have with us Elliot Abrams, a man who's worked for three presidents, and he has a lot of knowledge. I hope you will listen and share this on our podcast or go to breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Michelle, go ahead and let's talk about love this. democracy. Democracy. Love um, it. 
Well, something that we uh, obviously care very much about here in the United States of America. But what is our role and what should be our role when it comes to promoting, protecting, uh, spearheading, growing democracy in other parts of the world? You would think this wouldn't be such a divided debate, but it is. We have a lot of people that say it's not our business. Just concentrate on our home turf and territory. And then you've got the other side that says, look, we have a responsibility to to frankly humanity and 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 uh, the entire world to make sure that uh, representative government uh, democracy mm-hmm. is promoted so that everyone uh, can have the chance at prosperity because I think we could all agree uh, when people do that lessens the kind of violence that we see and plight that people are in and um, but 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 where what's yeah. our role and what should that be <clears throat> well, if anything I think first um, we're always balancing various interests, right? right? The government is not an NGO. We have commercial interests, financial interests, national security interests, um, as well as the desire to see other countries be democratic. So we're always balancing them. Um, it's false that sometimes people say, well, you can't make that the center of your foreign policy. It never is. It's one of the things in our foreign policy. But, you know, if you look around the world, democracies don't go to war with each other. Democracies don't fight each other. A world that's more democratic is going to be a more peaceful world. And it's going to be better for us because those are natural allies of ours. You see it in the Pacific, the countries that are afraid of and opposing China, like South Korea, Japan, Australia, the Philippines. Obviously, you see it in Europe and the NATO countries. Um, So it is in our interest. And if you look at, at the say, the refugee flows, you know, you see all the Venezuelans mm-hmm. coming to the United States. That's because they have a vicious dictatorship that is destroying, the, has destroyed their economy um, and eliminated democracy in that country. So people flee. Seven million of them have, have fled Venezuela. That wouldn't happen if they had a decent democratic government. So we have a, we have a direct interest here in having more and better allies, and in our own region, having a more stable Central America, Caribbean area, Latin America more generally. Think what it would be like if we had, uh, if we didn't have Canada, and instead we had, you know, choose your country, but we had a country like Venezuela on our northern border with a 3,000-mile border. So it is in our interest to do this. It is not in our interest to make it the only thing we care about. We have, you know, we, we President Reagan always used to say, trust but verify. He did negotiate with the Russians, with the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union. It's, nobody's saying we shouldn't talk to them. Nobody's saying we should forget about national security. But one of the elements of our national security, I would argue, um, is the expansion of the number of countries that are democratic countries and naturally look to the United States as a friend and ally. What do you do with the countries that push back on wanting to um, support and and become a democratic uh, country? Well, what do you do with them? You know, in most cases, I maybe you'd say all cases, you know, it's, it's, it's the corrupt leadership. It's not the people. You look at yeah. Iran, I mean, which is an enemy. It's not the Iranian people, you know. Yeah. They, never, they never chose this death to America hostility. Um, same thing with Russia. I think if Putin fell, you you might well see a less 
aggressive Russia. It's in Putin's interest to invade all these, you know, Georgia and Ukraine and all. So I think what we need to do in those cases is give at least moral support and maybe some material support. Um, You know, for example, broadcasting. Mm. We did that throughout the Cold War, Radio Free Europe, Voice of America. That's critically important. It's not going to cause a war. It's not all that expensive. But it's a way of getting our message out to the people of those countries. They want to hear that message. They didn't choose those governments. No, and they need to know that they have someone in their corner rooting for them. And I can imagine that those in power are going to absolutely balk and push back on, uh, you know, having a system that would probably take them out. They do, and, you know, for broadcasting, for example, they tried jamming. In in the Cold War days, the Reagan days, you know, we used to ship in fax machines. Sounds like the Middle Ages now, but that was an advanced technology back then. Um, nowadays, obviously, it's Internet. And what we should be doing and are doing, for example, trying to help Iranians and Russians get their news um, on the Internet because they're sure not going to get it from the regimes. that Just don't get run. it from TikTok. Yeah. Knowledge, knowledge is power. Elliot Abrams, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Hope you'll come on again soon. You've been fantastic, and we appreciate, appreciate your honesty and your experience. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. And we'll be right back. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. On our segment now, we have Andrew Hale. He is the Senior Policy Analyst in Trade Policy and Heritage's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. It's a lot, a lot to speak out there, but it is he's an economist, and he talks about trade policy. And today we're talking about China defaulting on their U.S. debt. First, folks, are you concerned about your economic future? May I recommend that you go and invest in Y-Refi? Y-Refi can guarantee an up to a 10.25% return in helping college students on their overdue college loans. So just log in to investyrefy.com. That's right, invest in yrefy.com or call 888-YREFY-24. Tell them Chuck and Sam sent you if you're interested in having a continual source of income as you retire. Andrew, welcome to the show. Yes, hello. Thank you so much for having me. So first question, you have worked in the U.S. State Department and for a member of Congress. Which one did you enjoy the most, and what were your big takeaways from working for both entities? Um, well, when I was in the State Department, um, it was, I was in a bureaucratic office. So I was um, dealing with a lot of paperwork and sitting behind a desk, um, uh, and uh, computer monitor quite a lot, and um, it was not very forward-facing. But that was just my particular job, so okay. it's not a reflection on the institution. With, with regards to Congress, it was very, very active. I was working for a very dynamic member of Congress who was quite unique. He was a Holocaust survivor, and he was the chairman of the, International, the Foreign Affairs Committee. So I have to say that my takeaway was I learned a great deal 
um, and the congressman also encouraged his staff to um, take a lot of responsibility. So I have to say that I prefer the role in Congress. That's fantastic. All right, so you wrote this fascinating article. That's why we wrote, reached out to you, and it was in The Hill, and it's called China is in default on a trillion dollars in debt to the U.S. bondholders. Will the U.S. force repayment? Um, you know, we pay approximately $850 billion a year in interest on our national debt. We actually spend more interest on our national debt than we do programs for children in this country now, which is just insane. But China's defaulting on their debt to the United States. What does this mean for the United States, and what should they do about it? Well, I'm so, that's a very important question. I'm, I'm very glad you asked that, because you see, China's in selective default. Because you see, they've actually paid British bondholders. Because you see, this this is um, debt that goes back to the um, debt of the imperial uh, government of the Chinese emperor, who then, of course, abdicated in, 2000, in uh, 1911. And then after they had the Republic, Republic of China up until 1949. And then, of course, the People's Republic of China won the Civil War. And they defaulted on, on the debt that was taken out by those two previous administrations. And they have real stuff that they still benefit from, roads, bridges, railway, etc. And they're the only country I can think of that gets away with violating international finance law, domestic U.S. law, and international law concerning successor government doctrine. And so, but for whatever, I think largely because the United States does so much business with China, often we look the other way with regards to this and other matters. Well, like let, let, right and, let me, and let me stop you right there, Andrew. Um, so, for example, and you can explain a little bit briefly to our folks, China loans a lot of money to third world countries. Yes. If those third world countries do not pay them back, what does China do? China holds them over a gun barrel. I mean, they basically they 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 get them indebted, and then they require property, uh, deep water ports. They take stuff from them. They basically, in some cases, if you look at the Solomon Islands, they're effectively taking their sovereignty. So, um, and they're doing that right here in our hemisphere. Uh, in in, North, in in they're doing that in South America, the Caribbean, and Central America by getting these countries heavily in debt and building ports. And I think it's time to tattle a bit more Ronald Reagan in the Grenada invasion or uh, JFK with regards to the Cuban Missile Crisis and not let them interfere in our sphere of influence. So, so China once was defaulting on sovereign debt to the United Kingdom. What did Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher do then in regards to the negotiations in Hong Kong and the debt? Yes. So, for example, um, Margaret Thatcher, during the negotiations to return to Hong Kong, Mrs. Thatcher was reluctant to give Hong Kong back. And the Chinese responded that we could, they could just turn off the water. Um, and Britain could, would be very difficult for the United Kingdom to defend Hong Kong uh, if China just wanted to take it, uh, given they were halfway around the world. So, but she still drove a very hard bargain and said that the People's Republic of China must honor the default of sovereign debt held by British citizens in order for China to have access to U.K. capital markets. And so faced with that stock choice, the PRC agreed. But the U.S. has never given China that stock choice. So should we do that? Yes. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission and other relevant government departments in Washington need to ensure that the PRC cannot issue new sovereign debt in the United States until such time that they have made at least some satisfactory settlement on their defaulted sovereign debt owed to American bondholders. How much are we talking about? I mean, it's close to a trillion, but how much of that is interest, and who's this affecting? So I think what happens, and we talk about national debt a lot on our show, but I think what's happening is it's monopoly money, right? It's like you and I, Andrew, we get together, and we just play Monopoly for four hours because the game never seems to end. And, you know, this money seems fake. So 
So tell me who, you know, who is China affecting by not paying back these debts? Well, for example, I, I wouldn't quite agree with you that it's monopoly money because these bonds were gold-denominated bonds. Well, no, but what I'm saying is people people view these big numbers as monopoly money. I agree with you. It's, it's real money, but people hear these numbers yeah. and their eyes sort of gloss over like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? What, what does that even mean? Well, exactly. So the United States pays interest on over $850 billion in debt held by the People's Republic of China. <clears throat> and, but like I, we've said, that the PRC has defaulted on American bondholders. Now that... Uh, debt um, that they owe American bondholders is, in today's terms, worth over a trillion. So quite literally, the president could order the, the Treasury Secretary to purchase these effectively for pennies on the dollar and put them on the uh, Treasury books and use them for future negotiations with the People's Republic of China, or they could also use them to pay off the $850 billion debt held by the People's Republic of China. Is there momentum in Congress for taking a tougher line on China paying back their debt? Because certainly China holds people accountable when they loan them money, as we discussed earlier. What, yes. is, there, is there bipartisan appetite to have this confrontation? Well, there actually has been for decades a number of resolutions that have come through both houses of Congress. Democrat and Republican senators and congressmen have supported resolutions in decades past. But they, when they would go up to the White House, you know, the attitude was business is good. We don't want to upset the apple cart. We don't want to upset Wall Street or all the major companies and people invested in China. So we're going to just ignore that. We are now in a different place. We're in a new Cold War with China, and now there's even more support in, the, in both houses of Congress, and I think there'll be pressure on the current administration and any future administration to address this matter. What if China continues to fail to meet these obligations? Um, and what's the type of legislation that we could pass that pressures them to do it, and what would be the result of that legislation that you feel that would sort of force China to pay their bills? Well, one one thing you could do, I've mentioned a few things already, but one thing you could do as a first course of action is the three primary credit rating agencies need to incorporate this defaulted sovereign debt into their sovereign debt credit ratings. So I'm referring, of course, to S&P, Moody's, and Fitch's. The SEC could then compel, they could actually compel the credit rating agencies, if required by Congress, the Congress passed legislation, the SEC could compel the credit rating agencies to do this. And it's, in my opinion, it's absurd and it's unfair that the People's Republic of China has an A credit rating when they're in selective default. And what that would do, they certainly wouldn't be issuing more of their own debt if their credit rating took a plunge. All right. Now, you handle trade um, for Heritage yeah. Foundation. Okay. Let me. I, I saw an article this week. It actually was on Axios is where I read it. And it was sort of funny, the spin. So Mexico now has supplanted China as the United States' top trading partner. Um, so they do $69 billion, China does $47 billion. Uh, how much? That's how much they grew, okay? Do you view that as a good thing or bad thing? I think that we need to do – I think it's a bad thing. I think we need to do more friend-shoring and near-shoring. And as I've said before in this call, I think we need to address, well, the Monroe Doctrine. Why are we allowing China to effectively hoover up, you know, economic and even diplomatic and even security uh, power in this hemisphere, North and South America? So I think we need to address this as a matter of urgency. It's one re- thing to look at them take Hoover up Africa or Oceana, Oceana or Asia, but to have them actually right here in our backyard, I personally find that very, very threatening. I think it's a huge security breach that we've allowed it to go this far. 
And I think that we, the current administration needs to take this much more seriously. I agree with you. I, I have discussed this for years um, with friends and policy folks that I feel the United States has simply performed malpractice by not focusing more on Central and South America. That this Absolutely. is our backyard. And so for our folks who, because civics is horrible in high school now, explain to them what the Monroe Doctrine was and why we should re-engage the Monroe Doctrine as a national security policy. Well, under President Monroe, what happened was is that they told the European powers, which had colonies here, that they couldn't acquire any more, that that was enough, um, and that this was America's sphere of influence. And so at the time, of course, you know, they were looking, of course, at, you know, the United Kingdom and Canada was uh, British Dominion um, and, uh, you know, British British interest. And then, of course, there were Caribbean islands and, and all sorts of, you know, uh, various colonies in South America as well. And so they said, no more. You can't acquire any more. Uh, and we will intervene if you do a try. It was giving notice to other countries not to interfere any further in this hemisphere. And We've, we're not invoking that anymore. We're just letting China walk in. If you look at, for example, Barbados, one small island, by getting that country so heavily in debt in these Belt and Road projects, building stadiums and all sorts of infrastructure that they can never, ever pay off adequately. So, again, it's compromising those countries' security. And, of course, if they're starting to build deep water ports here and they can start actually docking naval ships here, this is a serious threat, and we need to start taking it very seriously. What What do you think? I mean, part of what Heritage does is they, they are a great resource for policy, especially for folks on the right of, of center. What do you think we can do to start getting Congress and, as a result, constituents more educated why this is important for us to do as a policy matter and for national security? Well, I think, for example, a lot of members of Congress are – addressing this matter. It is very topical. There's bipartisan interest. I will say this, though. I think there's also a lot of people who do a lot of saber-rattling and they speak the speak, the, talk, the good talk on this issue. But I think also, at the end of the day, you know, look where some congressmen and senators are having their coffers lined by. You know, you have to look at where the money's going. And I think one of the reasons why, there's two reasons why we haven't addressed this historically. There was a naive belief that China, we embrace them with trade and business, and then they'll, they'll obviously develop democracy and human rights and Western norms. And that has never happened. Now, that was naive, wishful thinking. But then, of course, there's simply the, the cynicism and, and the fact that a lot of people are getting rich and they don't want to upset the apple cart. Um, and I could think of a lot of people I could name, which I won't, uh, who basically have had very pro-China policies or don't want to address the very serious issues of the human rights, the Uyghur slave labor in the textile industry, any of that, because they're heavily invested there. Companies and individuals heavily exposed to China. We have two minutes left. Um, What are things that you think presidential candidates on the Republican side should be talking about regarding trade. Um, Donald Trump seemed to sort of take us back to the tariff isolationist structure. I don't know where you are on that. But if you were king of the day for U.S. trade policy, what are two or three things that you think we should implement or double down on? I take the view that I come from a free trade background. Having said that, there is a sort of almost religious belief in free, universal free trade among some people, which I think needs to be checked, and I think President Trump checked that. I do not, and I no longer believe, in free trade with foreign adversaries. 
And of course, the top of that list would be China. I don't believe you take look at the list of foreign adversaries that's in law, U.S. law. We're talking about China, um, Belarus, Russia, Cuba, um, Venezuela, uh, North Korea, etc. You look at countries like that. Correct. We should not have free trade with China. That's that, just, I, I, I want to. I, I'm going to have Sarah going to cut you off of the segment. I want folks to know where they can follow your work with Andrew Hale of the Heritage Foundation. He is a policy analyst for trade policy. Andrew, where can they follow you? Uh, yes, Drew Hale, D.C., on Twitter. Folks, go there. He is excellent. Um, Andrew, we hope you'll come back and visit us again. You've been fantastic today. Loved your article. Folks, go visit The Hill. You can just Google it. And um, Andrew, thanks for visiting us. And he discusses China defaulting on trillion dollars to U.S. bondholders. What will the U.S. do? So, Andrew, thanks for visiting us today. Thank you so much. Look forward to coming back. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is BreakingBattlegrounds.vote. Stay tuned for our podcast portion with Michelle and I talking about some issues that are affecting America today. Have a good weekend. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from godaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to the podcast-only portion of Breaking Battlegrounds with my humble self, Chuck Warren, and Michelle Eugenti-Rita in the studio with us today. Kylie's going to give us a little update here on some true crime saga, especially the missing boy in Houston with some updates and uh, a correction. Yeah, I um, made a mistake last week. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not afraid to um, admit correct. it. Yeah, you, obviously, admit it. you obviously don't work for the Washington Post, but continue. Yeah. Exa- yeah. <laughs> um, so last week I had said that the, it was from the state of Texas that if you have a child that's missing for three years or more, then you get a payout. That was incorrect. What it was was he had a brother that had passed away about a year or two prior to him, in quotes, going missing. Um, and his life insurance was left to Rudy. This is the Rudy Farias case. I just jumped right into it. Jumped right into it. We talked about it last week. Down in Houston. (laughs) Yes. So the life insurance was going to Rudy, but in the case that Rudy was missing or if he passed away, then that money after three years would then go to his mom. So now that's a speculation of why she did it. Motivation. Yes. Um, Last week we had left off with Rudy and his mom were, again, in quotes, on the run. Um, They are now separated. No one's arrested the mother's not being charged with anything rudy is with some other family members um his mom is with it looks like friends family we we talked about this and michelle you've worked on this i think what it is is the consent law in texas is probably 16 or younger since she was 17 i think that's why there's been no charges uh consent for so um a little update or a little like a a relationship with an adult Oh, yeah. so okay. He went, right, right. So Rudy went missing. Okay. In, I'm saying in quotes eight years ago because, but really they found that he was just li- his mom was holding him captive in the home and making him perform oh, inappropriate yeah. actions with her and acting like the father of the home. Oh wow. Yes. So a little like disturbing. Very but he was saying he had the form. So he did an interview with Fox um, this week, and he had said that he feels like he had a form of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that you? like he wasn't physically like chained down and being held captive there, but she was very manipulative and saying if you leave the house, the cops will arrest you and stuff like that. So just putting that in his mind that he couldn't do anything but 
be hers. And the Stockholm syndrome means too that you are sympathetic with your. You captor. become sympathetic. Yes, absolutely. you start to feel bad for them, and you Correct. don't want yes. them so to his, hurt. And his dad had committed suicide, and then it lost a brother in a Got motorcycle it. accident. So it was just them two. She reported him missing, and so. Um, but the mom's response to his interview was, "He's being rehearsed," and um, his lawyer even says, or her lawyer said that that sounds very rehearsed and not like him. Um, and that she doesn't believe that like he's he she's How saying old he's is he lying. now? He's twenty five now. He yeah. went missing at seventeen. Yeah, and again, so, I say missing in well, quotes. She but. sounds so incredibly manipulative. Yeah, but GoFundMe has since banned her because she's created so many GoFundMe's oh. under different names and everything. So she's since been banned from she, that. She and, is. She is a character. Yeah, but I think GoFundMe is going to make her pay back the money that she may have taken from that if they can get it. If they can, yeah, yeah if they're, can. They're, that money's not coming back. No. I mean, no. she doesn't. She doesn't sound honest or sound mind enough to say I want to pay back and make up. But make how amends. is there not a law that? has been broken here. Well, I'm just saying, if he's saying he exactly. has, he's a consenting individual based on the consent laws of a state, right? I mean, what is the consent law Can here you to date an adult here in Arizona? What is the consent law? I think that's something you worked on with marriage. Well, I did, but that was that was marriage. And, and, and but what, was the, what was the age limit? It was 16. You could get married. No, and that, in fact, you could even get married younger with your parents. So that's my point. They may have a consent law because he's 17. He's of old enough. Right, but, but you have to get married. I don't think they got married. Did he marry his mom? I, 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 we're just no, trying to figure no, out why yeah. she's not arrested. And yeah. the only thing That's, I can, yeah, yeah, the, only, the only thing, only thing I can come up with is there's the consent law. Well, there's the like Romeo and Juliet laws where you know if there's a three year differential, it's yeah. considered okay. But I think this all changes with the fact that it's, it's his, his mom. mother. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's go to another depressing topic yes, here. This is so, good. Um, this is <laughs> so monthly payments on a four hundred thousand dollar home in the United States now is nearly one thousand dollars more expensive than they were two years ago. Michelle, you're a recent, you know, yeah, home interest. buyer. And we you and I talked about this last week now. Uh, Americans to feel financially secure feel they need to make two hundred thirty three thousand dollars a year. What what has to happen? I don't know what needs to happen look, here because no one's gonna. There's not a lot of people are gonna make two hundred thirty thousand dollars a year, right? I mean, right. it's just for, for lots of reasons, yeah. right? But this is a problem for people. I think it's a couple of things. One, costs really have gone up. I, I mean, for mean, example, you you gro- you're, you're a cook, you grocery shop. Oh. How much do you, do you, have you noticed it visibly when oh. you go to the cash register? It, it, I throw up a little bit in my mouth when I go to the cash <laughs> register because it's it is it's it's. It's so expensive. Um, but you know what? Eating out is even more expensive. So then you Correct. just you go ahead and you go ahead and do it. But triple, triple the amount. I mean, you spend a hundred bucks in the grocery store and you're walking out with like one bag. Yeah. It's just I'll walk in just I for mean, breakfast stuff. I mean, I just like, have one bag of wine that I walk out with. I can't. I'm just <laughs> wow, this well, is expensive. That's, that's a reusable bag though, <laughs> yeah, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's got a lot of use. But what but I mean, there's also the entitlement component. So I think prices have gone up. But I think people's expectation um, for what they should have and, you know, what they want. I mean, right. when they're sitting there on, on social media, it looks like everybody is on a yacht these days. And I don't think that that perception is, is reality. And so, I mean, because you're asking, you know, why do people think they need $250,000 to right. feel comfortable? Right, 233 yeah. 30. No, yeah. But the things like the mortgages, that's a real yeah, bill. That's real. I mean, that's you know, when you go from 2 3% plus mortgage rate to 7% yeah, plus, interest. I mean, that's real money. Paper was, I mean, it was free, uh, you know, not too long ago, essentially, with interest rates being so low. I mean, now, now um, and there doesn't seem like there's going to be any relief in sight. It's the interest rates are 
incredibly high. Um, I don't know that they have reached pinnacle height. I mean, I think in the, you would know, in the 80s. In the 70s? What were they, like 80s. in the 80s? Okay. Well, interest rates were 13% were in the, percent in okay, the 80s. Yeah. I remember my parents. They were double digits, I remember right? my parents bought a home, and it was 13% interest rate. Yeah. I mean, that's oh. just, I mean, can you imagine? No. I'm not. I mean, it just makes you boggle your mind. You're never paying off that home You're because everything's going to interest right. towards it. Uh, Michelle, what's going on in, in Arizona that people should be paying attention to? Uh, well, if you listen to the news media, you would think that we are all living in a volcano and we're about to d- die of heat stroke. It is hot here right now in Arizona, but um, I think that's just a liberal agenda pushing climate change. But anyway, um, outside of that, I think you've got the sessions uh, still going, um, which is unusual here They in don't Arizona. end anymore now. You know what? They, it's just like the song that never ends. It goes on and on, my friend. Um, some people start... That feels like session. Uh, typically, it's... It would have concluded they want to keep it open, Chuck, because we have a Democrat governor and that's something that Arizona typically doesn't have. And so they are keeping the legislative session open to hopefully provide some kind of check on her authority, runaway executive orders, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know how well that strategy is working, but that's kind of where we're at. Um, how many bills has Katie Hobbs signed into law this year? Well, many, well it's really vetoed. the, yeah. yeah it's really, vetoed? I mean, she's, well, I don't know how many she signed. Has she, she signed any? She has signed. Okay. Yes, she okay. has. And, but she, she does hold the record now for most vetoed, you know, bills. I don't know why we're surprised. I, I served with uh, Katie Hobbs. I mean, she's very liberal. Mm-hmm. She's very extreme. I mean, she's certainly living up to the reputation people who know her. Uh, as a liberal, she, she's doing. I mean, she's she's exercising and uh, those philosophies uh, as governor um, really tells you elections matter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they really do. I, I mean, you're just seeing the result of it. She's no surprise what she's That's doing. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it's not a surprise. It's disappointing. It's unfortunate. It's it's going to make Arizona have to climb out of a bigger hole. Um, but we can do it. But she really is. It's not a surprise um, that she is governing so liberally. Um, last final comment. So Kamala Harris is always worthy of entertaining us for the week. Um, this week, she, in her word salad, she described AI as AI. I mean, she it's just... a fancy thing. The, the thing that's hard about her for me is she's the AI czar, and I don't think she knows what it is. Do you? What is her approval rating? It's like the lowest of any vice yeah, president. Yeah, and we, so we had Chris Wilson on last week, and he's a national pollster, and we just asked if she brings any benefit to Biden. And I, I want to know what the White House thinks she brings. I, I completely agree. Other than uh, she's like a ball and chain, she's an anchor. To- yeah, I mean, it's just you know, and we're going to play play here, play here as we sign off. Um, just this <laughs> mishmash that. Um, a compilation of all her various fun word clouds that she has she put together. She rivals Biden. No, I mean, it's not even, yeah, but I think with Biden, he gets the benefit of the doubt from some people that, look, I know he was once really, really smart. He's old, right? We give our elders a little more flexibility, but people are her, with her just like, really? <laughs> I mean, I just don't know what she brings to the table for them. No, I, 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 I agree. And I think that's why you don't see her very much. I, I, I don't really see them so, pushing. Her so very let me much. ask you this: you, you, You've served for twelve years in the legislature here, and you obviously—I mean, it's real. There is real sexism in the world, um, and I think there's real sexism towards female 
elected officials and candidates. It's it's real. It's even if people don't want to admit it. But do you think the criticisms of her are based on sexism or she just doesn't meet the standard what we want for a vice president? No, I mean, the, the criticisms on her are, are based on her actions right? Uh, and the way that she communicates, uh, the way that um, she talks about issues. And if you don't believe it, I, you know, I think what you were going to do, show the compilation. I mean, it's, it's right there. She, she doesn't look like she has a grasp of the issues or that she can articulate a platform in any level of death. Uh, depth, excuse me, and that's why people think that uh, you know she's a bit of a yeah, clown. I just don't think right? it's a sexist issue. I think she just doesn't meet what people expect from their vice president. No, no, they don't. Right. I, I completely agree. Well, Michelle, thanks for joining us this week. This was a blast. It's been fantastic, Kylie. Thank you for the update, of course, and for the sincere correction, which you would not that's find what I'm here in the for. Washington Post. Um, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. You can find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Um, sign up, listen to our podcast, share it with your friends. We're going to leave with this compilation of Kamala Harris. Enjoy it and share. Have a great weekend and week, folks. Mm-hmm.